Welcome to Briarwood Football Classics. I'm Matthew Forster. I'm the head coach of Briarwood Christian School in Birmingham, Alabama. This season is the 50th season of Briarwood Football, and we're publishing this podcast to remember some great games and moments from the past. And these are Briarwood Football Classics. Well, the voice you've been hearing uh, introducing all of these podcasts is actually our final podcast of this whole series. Uh, it's my pleasure to have Matthew Forrester uh, help kind of close out this BCS Classics podcast. So, Matthew, man, thanks for spending some time to close this thing out. Absolutely. Glad to be here. Grateful for all that you've done. I think it's been just incredible to look back um, throughout the decades and over the years to hear a lot of people talk. Uh, it's been really neat, and we've really enjoyed listening to it. Yeah, I'd like to do a couple things. I did this with Coach Yancey, but I'd love to talk with you a little bit about uh, what the influences were as a, your experiences as a player. I think um, you, you learn a lot about what you should do uh, from coaches. You learn a lot about what you shouldn't do from a coach. And so um, I think one of the key things I've always had or been able to do is just recognize things that I've enjoyed. Um, I always thought Coach Yancey was a player's coach. He put their interests first um, in, in, the, in the smaller things, um, the, the locker room, the culture, things like that. So I always thought that was a neat thing that he did, whether it's um, asking for advice on a uniform or you know just small things uh, that really felt like he cared for you. And so that was one of the major things that I, I took away uh, from Co- – or one of the major things I took away from Coach Yancey. Uh, was the idea of his care for his players. I think that was a big one. Um, You you watched, or I I got to watch and experience my dad coaching me. Mm -hmm. And so to have somebody that's so, um, you know, not only am I at practice with him every day, I'm riding home with him after practices, after games when I'm little. So I always got a a little bit extra critiquing or thoughts on a game, thoughts on a practice. And so it helped me learn to analyze practices maybe a little bit more than most kids because it's a not only we're doing it there but we're talking about it for a 20-minute car ride home and then we're you know occasionally talking about it around the dinner table and so there's a little bit more where it was more central in my life Um, and then you watched uh, coach Castile I think just coach with the the passion that he did um, the purpose that he did he didn't really mince words he didn't really waste uh, the player's time or his time on things that weren't important. Yeah. And so it, it was real direct. And you appreciate not standing out there for long amounts of time listening to somebody talk. He's going to speak. He's going to tell you what you need to do. He's going to tell you how you can do it better. And so you, you take those. Those were the key kind of Briarwood influences I had. And then I headed off to Samford, and um, you just saw like a totally different style of coaching not right or wrong, but just different style. And there were things through that experience that, that I learned that was really good. And then coaching's coaching, playing's playing. And one, one of the joys I had was back, we lived in Sylacauga before we came to Briarwood. And I had this old uh, coach named Mayfield. Uh, he didn't have a son, wasn't married. He just, after a job, liked to go out and coach Little League Baseball. And um, in a lot of ways, it, it was it was different than anything because it wasn't daddy ball. It was Mayfield's team. <laughs> and um, Mayfield didn't have a dog in the hunt, so he played the best players. Um, he had a standard that he wanted us to live up to. Um, and if we didn't do stuff right, we would run about 200 yards to a light pole at the far end of the field and 
you're not doing it right, everybody go touch the light pole. And then it was uphill both ways. I mean, <laughs> it was, but at least on the way up it was. And so it, and you just learn those little things that if we're going to do things right, we're going to do it excellent, not some of the time, not all the time. We're not going to play favorites. We're going to just get out there and work hard. And so I got that in fourth, fifth, sixth grade, which was a neat experience for me too. Now, uh, before we move on, do you have any Vince Lombardi running through your blood uh, the way you know, your granddad and dad did? Or does, is it just something you admire from a distance? Or what, what, how much does the Forrester experience uh, with Green Bay flow into your style as a Forrester? Yeah, I think um, I mean, my dad, my grandfather lived it. My dad had got to experience it and watch it. And so what I get are the remnants and I get the stories. Yeah. Um, and so we'd be on car trips um, with my grandfather and he'd just start telling old Vince Lombardi stories, old Green Bay stories. Um, the one that always uh, sticks out to me and kind of first to my mind is they won two world championships. Um, it's before they had the Super Bowl. And so uh, they won, I think it was 61 and 62. Um, and then they're going that night uh, after they win the world championship. They go to a party at Vince Lombardi's house. And uh, my grandfather's nickname was Bubba. And he was Vince Lombardi's defensive captain. And so he, he pulls uh, my grandfather aside. And they've been talking for a while. And it's, it's probably f three hours after the game. And he looks at, looks at him and goes, Bubba? I think we can do it again. And yeah. it's, I mean, we're, we're three yeah. hours after and we're celebrating and he's already got his wheels turn, turning about next year and he's focused uh, on, on doing it again. And so that's one of the things, whether I saw, I heard those stories, but also saw Coach Yancey. I mean, Coach Yancey had just constant optimism about next year and he always had this joy coming about next year. And so whether well, stories like that, thinking, man, like, I get to do this again next year and being focused and ready to go on next year. I think that's one of the things that I enjoy and I have. And then the other story is uh, Emlyn Tunnell. He was an older player from uh, the New York Giants because Vince Lombardi and Tom Landry, Vince Lombardi was the offensive coordinator, Tom Landry was the defensive coordinator, and Emlyn Tunnell was the DB, and he was an older guy. But when Coach Lombardi came to Green Bay, he traded for Emlyn Tunnell. And um, my grandfather said the first thing they would do is they'd start with grass drills. And he would just up down you till you don't think you can stand up again. And he, he said, I, I'd be going down, and it's like, I don't know if I can get up. And then I'd hear this old 30-year-old, late 30s, uh, shrill voice in the back. He said, you gotta love it! You gotta <laughs> love it! And so um, I think that was a big thing for, um, me just the the passion for the game and, and and seeing that from a young age and that's as I started high school football my grandfather wrote me a letter and told me that story again and it's just like hey if you're gonna do it do it with all your heart yeah and so so first memory of Briarwood your dad comes y'all moved from Silicaga so take me to those early thoughts reactions. Uh, what was it like coming to Briarwood as a young man? Yeah, well, it wasn't an easy transition. I had a great group of friends in Sylacauga, and then coming to Briarwood, um, it took a, a little bit of a transition, not because the people weren't great. Uh, I'll forever remember, like, first day at Briarwood, it's lunchtime. I've got my tray. Where am I going to sit? 
and Randy Goggins, hey, come sit with us. And that's oh, like cool. one of the, yeah. the great memories of like, man, I had somewhere to sit. And so that was seventh grade. Um, but even before that, um, two-a-days had started, and um, they, they, they would practice in the morning. I'd come up with my dad. I'd stay here pretty much all day because I'd have to go to junior high practice. And then after that, the varsity would go out, and the varsity would practice on the game field at night under the lights. And this back when we had grass. And so in order to get this everything ready, they'd fertilize the grass. And um, so when, But when they fertilized it, they put a blue dye down mm-hmm. so that they, they'd make sure they got the rose. So uh, one of my earliest memories is watching um, Joey Nigro, uh, Manning Sumner, John Caleb Threadcraft, just full contact hitting, making tackles, uh, standing up with excited yelling, and, and they'd stand up and they'd look at their hands and it's just blue. Like their <laughs> hands are totally blue and they're giving each other high fives yeah. and stuff like that. So I'd, I'd just be a little kid, seventh grader, sitting on the sidelines watching this. Um, and just eating it up, thinking yeah. these guys are absolutely amazing. That's who I want to be one day. So we could spend a lot of time talking about your Briarwood playing career. Uh, I wanted to, to do just two what I call uh, iconic uh, pictures or memories that still kind of last to this day. Uh, the first one actually is a picture. It used to hang on their wall, but it's you, I believe it was a freshman, freshman football game, took the picture right as – like all of his headgear is just exploding. And that picture staying on the wall forever. I don't think people even knew that was you after a while. But uh, no, yeah, that was uh, so. It was John Carroll. Okay. Um, but um, so Doctor Downs, Matt, Matt and Thomas's uh, dad, is, is there and he takes the picture. Um, but we're we're coming. We're kicking off. And it's one of those just like, man, this is, this is crazy. But I, we kick off, ball doesn't go very far, goes kind of to the, the left hash, and the guy gets it on maybe the 20, the 30, and he starts running down. And I'm just running, and nobody's blocking me. And then there's, there's like 10 yards where it's just me running, and then I'm looking, and the guy doesn't see me coming. And I'm like, this is this is perfect. Like you, you can't draw it up any better than that. So I take off and I'm running full speed because it's kickoff, and he never saw me coming, and nobody ever touched me. So I, I hit him, bam, I hit him, and when I when I roll over and look up, I see Coach Yancey and my dad on the sidelines laughing, and I was like, well, must have been pretty good. Then I look around and. The, the other players are helping pick up his helmet, his chin strap, his earpieces, and his mouthpiece. Like, everything just exploded. And what they told me after the afterwards is when I hit him, his helmet went about six feet up in the air, and everything came out of it. And so it's one of those, like, perfect time, perfect opportunity. And, like, I took it, and I hit him as hard as I could, um, and he never saw me coming. It was like, it was bam. And so Dr. Downs gets it like perfect, like the chin straps off, the ear pads are starting to come out, helmets coming up. And so, yeah, it, it was one of those just, man, that was that was fun. But my favorite part will always be seeing my dad, seeing Coach Yancey <laughs> on the sideline laughing. Um, and that, that's one of my fondest memories. And then the other one's the end of your career uh, as a senior. You know, you, you're on the team that goes 15-0. and 0. Takes Briarwood the very first ever state championship game, win it, uh, going away, and then on the highlight tape that year, you know, there's a fumble, uh, I guess in the fourth quarter, late in the game, 
and you scoop it up, and then uh, y'all are running down the field uh, on a fumble recovery that ends up in the touchdown with you as the Mike linebacker with the football, and then the Sam and Will right next to you. Just and I always thought, what a an iconic moment to to kind of bookend your Briarwood career. So, what are your memories about that? It happens, and it's neat. And then one of the things we realize afterwards is, like one of the other team captains, Rob Shaw, he makes the last tackle of our junior season because it's Aliceville, we throw an interception, we end up losing the game, and he makes the tackle. And just doesn't end up like we want it. And mm-hmm. then, but it's, it's an offensive player making the last tackle. And then one of the, I guess, unique things is, now here I am a defensive player I'm getting to score the last touchdown yeah. um, of the state championship game. So it was one of those, like, we, we had a really good game plan. It felt really good. And we blitzed, or I blitzed through the A-gap a lot, and they really didn't have an answer. Um, and so I blitz again, and they toss the ball, and the ball, the running, it throws it right behind him, kind of on his hip, and the running back doesn't get his hands back. And it's just rolling around back there. And I just blitzed free, and I'm like, oh, there's the ball. So I, I scoop it up. The quarterback was there, sidestepped him, and then, like, I don't think anybody's coming. And so we're running down, uh, me, uh, Matt Downs, Daniel Avery, and it was, it was just just fun. Like, we did it. We uh, One of the things that had talked about in 98, there was the IMAX had come out, and there was a movie called Everest, and it was talking about the trek up the mountain of Everest uh, or Mount Everest. And so for us, it was it was that our season had all been about the climb and how mm-hmm. it, it was on the way up. And so to me, the the catching, the scoring was like kind of the mountaintop. Like we've reached it, we've done it. We don't have to play. Like we're going to put young guys in at this point. Mm-hmm. Like I think the next time I go on the field is for the last play of the game, just because I wanted to end my career on the field. Um, but yeah, it was like we'd done it. We'd reached the mountaintop. And that was kind of, in a lot of ways, planting the flag of that season. So yeah. this will be the hardest question I ask you because you're not going to feel comfortable asking it. I should have looked this up myself. But the the lasting records now for tackles, career tackles season that still remain, what what, what what's left? Um, total season tackles, so most tackles in a season. And then um, they have – That was what? 285. 285, okay. So, yeah, it was 19 a game for 15 games. So, not a lot of people. And it, it's one of those things that it probably won't ever be broken because nobody runs this style of offense. Yeah. yeah. Like, we had the, I had the fortune of two platooning. So, I got every defensive snap and I wasn't tired. So, I hustled to the ball. And then um, we, we ran a 4-3 defense. It was designed to spill everything outside to either the middle backer who was unblocked or safeties rolling down. And then um, the offenses were all like I-pro, wing T, double slot. Mm-hmm. And so it was one of those like, they're going to run the ball. Like we held multiple, we held a couple teams during my career to zero yards passing. It's not because we were shut down defense, it's because they didn't pass the ball. <laughs> so well, times over the last 15 years where we've held a team to really low passing yards. And it's been like, that is the holy, like that's the really good one because they tried to throw it. And we did a great job on defense that night. Um, so, the, the, so those are kind of the things that allowed it to happen. And then um, I think I'm third on career tackles now. Um, there's a linebacker from Spanish Fort who ended up playing five years of varsity football, started as an eighth grader, 
to a senior year, and he eclipsed me at some point a couple of years ago. And that was over 600, right? It was yeah, it was I, 615. Something, something like, like that. that, yeah. Uh, this next part, I wanted to talk a little bit about how the scheme of defense uh, has changed, and I guess to the offense's response. But when you think back to the original 4-3, cover four that your dad put in at Briarwood, and then you go to Samford and you get some different versions of that, and then today – all the different trips, coverages, you know. So, you know, you had such a long period as a defensive coach, coordinator, head coach, seeing both sides. But I just – it's hard to even get your head around how much the game has changed in that span of time. So, how, how do you articulate it as a coach? There, there's, a, there's a few years. Like, if you played ball for, like, maybe late 90s, early 2000s, you, you were one of those that were fortunate enough to play, and th this happened with me. Um, I played the in the smash mouth, eye pro, wing tee, played against that, and then because the offenses started to change, I got to play against the spread. It's like my junior, senior year, we're getting zone read action. And do I fill the A-gap? Do I have quarterback? And my, what I'm hearing is, well, you just got to figure it out. I'm like, wait, I'm supposed to potentially take on a 300-pound guy if the running back has the ball. If he doesn't, I need to run around him and get to the quarterback. Like, I, it can't be a lot of if-then. So that was, I mean, for me, one of the fundamental things that I learned um, from just the beginning of the spread is you can't have a guy tackle the running back or tackle the quarterback based on who has the ball. So give a guy one assignment. It's like, I can't do both. And um, so I learned that process. Um, and so that was a key part. Um, what the Miami 4-3 that was installed, everything was about taking smaller um, safeties and putting them at linebacker, putting your bigger linebackers at defensive end, your defensive end goes to tackles, and your nose guard go over to offense. And so <laughs> that, that was the yeah. ultimate kind yeah. of design of how, how it was run. Miami did that, and they did it with – disruptive defensive end, defensive line that's going to force everything outside. That fundamentally always made sense to me that we're going to try and force everything east and west as opposed to north and south. I mean, we, we often uh, talk a couple times a year that we're going to spill and we're going to force everything to run sideways. We're going to force everything to the sideline and we're going to chase it down. So that's the fundamental principle. And I, I don't think that's really necessarily changed spread or um, old school eye football. The bigger change has been the displacement of receivers into space. Yeah. And well, so then all of a sudden, RPO comes in. That linebacker that's supposed to have the quarterback, he's also supposed to be responsible for the flats. Well, now they're putting him in a bind because they're shooting somebody in the flats or bubbling somebody in the flats. And the quarterback has a triple option where he can give it on the inside zone, he can keep it, or he can throw it out there. So then figuring out coverages that kind of – um, take those three responsibilities away. So you start putting in a soft version of cover two. I mean, these are things I'm still even tinkering with this offseason, um, how to better do it. But that was the original, play two read or palms. So you're going to do that. And then, then all of a sudden they took, well, the, one of the neat things about high school football and also one of the frustrating things about high school football is the hashes are directly in a third of a field. Right. So now if you're going to go two by two and the, the hash, the ball's played 80% of the time the ball's on the hash, well, I'm not going to go two receivers to each side. 
I'm going to move that second receiver to the boundary over the field because that's where everything needs to happen. And all of a sudden your trips concepts come in. Mm -hmm. And at the beginning it was, well, how are we going to cover that? Well, your number two went to the other side, so now that boundary safety has three on a vertical. Or we're going to put the middle linebacker on three on the vertical, and that's pretty much where we're going to live. And those were the base, or you're just going to wholesale cover three, and if they run four verticals on you, you're going to hope you get pressure, and you're just going to read and react. Um, and those were kind of the early answers. And then as the RPO game continues to evolve, as the uh, Malzahn brings the sniffer uh, really to high school football, to Alabama football, and so that adds another element of power run game that wasn't really in the spread before. I think Rich Rodriguez bringing the inside zone and then Malzahn bringing the power run game, th those two things were quite opposite, and then you had to figure out the heart of a team. So that – and then now – so now the biggest thing for me is if the ball's on the hash 80% of the time and two-thirds of the field is uh, from the hash, well, teams are going to run a lot of trips and we need to have multiple trips coverages. So. I think the first couple of years the spread comes in, we've got two trips coverages in. Now we're rocking, I think, seven just base trips coverages. And then with the tags and all of that yeah. that you can do with each of those, it gets into the 40s. Probably. And you don't use it all for every game. You figure out what you need versus the offensive's opponent, and you specialize in typically two trips coverages a game. But you've got to have all of that in your pocket I mean, we even invented, new to us, we didn't hear it from anybody, we just kind of came up with it. We're still, hey, this would be a really good trips coverage we need. So we added a new one this year. Um, and then already this off season, I've heard of a third, uh, second one that it's like, I'm really interested in delving into that more. Uh, la last part of this, this uh, technical part, and we'll move into your transition as a head coach. Some more concepts about uh, players the FIB, the formation in the boundary, when did that kind of start becoming an early part of an offense's scheme? I understand that in college it's a little bit easier with the wider hashes, but uh, that's kind of lately, the last two years, you know, the word FIB has become kind of a buzzword, uh, both from on both offense and defense. So some of the thoughts about that as a scheme. Yeah, I think FIB and then condensed formations. Yeah. Those are probably the two uh, that are coming the most. I think, you know, the FIB is tough because you're putting your run strength for an offense. So it's it's probably a tight end and either a wing or a receiver. Or just, I mean, still the hardest formation in, in football is the nub trips. If you can get a power run game to the tight end side, close trips. If you can get a power run game to the tight end side, you still have to have numbers to the – um, field and where the trips are. So that makes it tough. And then just sometimes teams do a good job of putting trips into the boundary, throwing a screen, and it's just a bunch. Yeah, bunch just a trips. bunch trips. And it's like, yeah. how many guys do I want to devote <laughs> to defend the trips into the boundary? Because it's, I can't do too many passing concepts, but if I overload it, now I'm exposed. I'm one on one to the field. And again, like there's the fine balance. We go FIB. Well, yeah, I can go into the boundary, but there's two-thirds of the field the other way. Yeah. And, and it creates for one-on-one uh, offense uh, to have out there. It's also a quarterback uh, could just take it off and run. And so you've got to account for your numbers to the field because there's so much grass out there. But then at the same time, you've got to 
you feel like you need to overload and put your run strength to the to the boundary because of the numbers they have. So it's it's that pull back and forth of how far do I want to go? And then you see the formation into the boundary. And I think one of the big things we have to do is self scout or scout the offense. Like just because they do that, how often do they run into the boundary? Because um, that that's one of those things. Like I, I don't think many defensive coordinators want to take that field safety and rock him all the way over to the hash and just leave a bunch of grass out there uh, so your corner's one-on-one or if your backer misses a tackle you don't have a safety out there so it, it's definitely one of the tricky things and then the condensed formations have been I think brilliant I think what the Rams 49ers are doing with all of their condensed stuff has quickly trickled down to high school and college football and so it used to be you bunch in because you're going to run meshes or you're going to run speed outs or smash. Now you're seeing people bunch in so that they can get running lanes, extra running lanes created. Yeah. But that that's what you see too here is that you get these extra run lanes. Now you've got to take a guy that's dedicated to pass coverage and he's got to be a true run fitter and he's got to account and he's got to be willing to tackle the other team's best player. And then the other thing, it used to be a real – they're going to run out or they're going to run meshes. But now we're seeing a lot more over concepts, right. getting depth and attacking the deeper parts of the secondary. So now it's, well, I got to have my corners fit or I got to have the roll down safety fit quickly. And then all of a sudden attacking that 10 to 17 yard bubble that they would normally cover, but we can do some quick play action and we can quickly get across the field. And so you, it, it's hard to play man in those situations. Um, and, and it's one of those things that's another thing that we just continue to explore how to play the condensed uh, bunches. So you get the head coaching opportunity, you take over for a legend, uh, probably about a 90% failure rate, you know, when you look at just football over the years. And I remember you and I talking about, because uh, of my experience as a head coach, you know, you're looking at a three- or four-year process before you even kind of get an eye or feel of what you – want your team to look like so you just finished year four are you there yet <laughs> or how, what's what's happening with you as a as a head coach yeah, I think it, it's not um easy to ever take over a program that's been so successful um for me when I first took over it's like I mean the the structure the bones all that coach Ancy has done has been absolutely amazing and um he's built a dynasty He's built this great, and I equated it to a mansion. You know, it's got this great mansion with so many right things. Like, it would be foolish of me to come in and tear down mm-hmm. everything that he's done and just start over. So it's I want to I want to redecorate. I want to put my touches on it, but I want the bones and the structure of what Briarwood football has been uh, to continue. Uh, and that that's been one of the things I feel like I've done well. So like if, if you played in the late 90s, early 2000s, and your boy all of a sudden came through here, you'd be like, yeah, feels like the Briarwood football I always know. And so that, that, that's one of the, the goals that I've had is to make sure that the essence and, and what Coach Yancey brought to football uh, continues at Briarwood. But at the same time, like I, I can't act like him. We have strongly different personalities. Um, and so I've got to make sure – the, the offense, defense, and this overall feel of the program fits me. Um, and so we've done that. Um, it, it's been an interesting 
uh, year. It's been an interesting four years. It's the funnest thing I've ever done, but yeah. it's also the hardest thing yeah. I've ever done. And so uh, there, there's constant learning and growth. Um, and, and so I'm, I'm really excited as, as we move into the next uh, next year, having a new quarterback presents the let, let's get truly back to the roots of what we designed um, early on. Um, we, we had the pleasure this past year, if we could call any play in the playbook anytime we wanted to, and Christopher would know the reads and know where to go with the ball because he, he's done it for so long. And so I think the exciting part for me is offensively kind of getting back to the overall vision but simplifying in some ways because you're going to have a new guy under center that doesn't have all the experience. And then defensively, I think there's always been growth. There's been subtle changes, and I, I look forward to um, more growth defensively. Um, I think the coaches are primed uh, to have a great offseason of uh, examining every part of our offense and defense and special teams. And then the players are really excited uh, to get back in the weight room and get to work. What's been the biggest challenge? Well, I, I think when anytime you're trying to get kids, like, and, and this is different too than even when we were growing up, but definitely 30, 40 years ago, um, there's so many more opportunities that our, our students have today, which is a blessing. Like, we are blessed people. We, we've got so many great things happening in our lives. And so the, the challenge is always um, continued focus on what our responsibilities are. Like everybody wants to win on Friday night, but how many people want to win in the middle of January, the middle of February, or yeah. the middle of summer? Like that, the, the de attention to details at those times end up paying off long div uh, big dividends later on in the season. And so what, what we've had um, last couple years is we, we finished, uh, first season was in 5A, it was amazing. Then we head up to 6A um, for the last three years. The school sizes are bigger. And then also at the same time, there's um, better coaching, I yes. think, now than really ever before. Yeah, I agree. Um, the, all of the schools around here, I think what the Internet has done, what the, whether it's the Zooms that happened during COVID, yeah. like that, those took off. Yeah. I mean, there's coaching websites that um, – dedicated to having those zoom conferences and so you had college coaches that were bored at their house and just wanted to talk ball and they started making zooms and so the information has exploded and coaches have done i think a really good job of grasping all of that and so you you see the coaching elevated we're playing against bigger schools which the only the major issue is just purely depth right. um at, at this level having so much depth um, and so for us, it's just continuing to, to fight um, throughout the season, learning to play, like getting hardened, I think, is something you reference and now I'm fully into. Like there's a hardening that takes place during the season that your body gets adjusted to. And so uh, learning to battle through those and tough it out um, are definitely challenges uh, that we have to face. But we have to continue to pursue those things um, the toughening, the the ability to fight adversity, and then ultimately it's it's thinking clearly in tight, close situations. Yeah. I think practicing with enough chaos around you that you can calm down in the chaos of practice, so it makes it doing that in the game a whole lot easier. La last question: uh, What we're going to kind of end the whole series on? 
is football as a ministry, coaching as a discipleship uh, process. Has that changed uh, since the time you were a player in the early days of coach, or are there new techniques needed, new emphasis needed, or is it just uh, maintain the fundamentals that's always been true? So I, uh, for a long time, I had no real idea what I wanted to do in my life. It was probably seven, eight years ago that it's like, I'd like to be a head coach. Um, and I mean, that was, I've been a head coach for four years, so it wasn't like yeah. it just hit me. Um, and I always knew that. Like, I just, the Lord's placed me where he's wanted me to be. And I remember early on as I'm trying to just figure out, and this is my first two or three years at Briarwood, I wasn't really sure that this was my calling in life. But I, we were watching a junior high game, me and Coach Ancy, and I go, Coach Ancy, does it, does it feel strange to you that you get paid to coach a game? <laughs> and he looked at me like I was absolutely crazy. He was gracious, as he always is. And he goes, well, I don't really view it as coaching a game. I view it as an opportunity to have ministry and to speak into young men's lives. He goes, at school, everybody's required to go to school. And what I love is the fact that I get to coach their favorite subject. Mm-hmm. It just happens to be after the bell rings. But from three to five, every kid comes out and they get to be a part, favorite part of the day. So that allows me to have a direct chance to speak truth into their lives. And so I think for us, it, it, that, that, that ultimate idea still holds true. Like we get to speak truth. Uh, we get to model truth. Like we get to make mistakes and confess it to the, our team. We get to hold them accountable to you said you were going to be a part of the team. You did something wrong. Here are the consequences. They get to see how that, as a small example of how that will play out later in their life. And so – all of those little things allow us to be able to take the gospel to them. I think there's some unique challenges in our day and age with the technology that's around them. Mm-hmm. Um, that they're, they're, it used to be that you were around a coach more than you were around anybody else. And so I think that's not true anymore. Like while we are the most face-to-face um, real relationship that they're around, real adult figure they're around the most, um, with technology and social media, I think they're glued to that more and they get to interact with social media more than they do the coach. So uh, I, I think when we were playing, like you hung on Coach Yancey's word, Coach Castile's, yours, or my dad's words, like you hung on those words. And those were the words that you heard the loudest a lot of times. And wow. some of them it's still true, but I think a, a lot of them, like when they leave, there's social media that is then also speaking a contrary message to what we're saying. And so there's a battle within that they have to deal with. And so part of what we need to do is we need to be the best coaches that we can be, have the most um, accurate um, schemes and do all the little things well so that they hold us in high regard, so that they will hear our message more than they'll hear uh, the message of social media or the message the world is trying to play into their ear. So that's a great point. And then obviously then the enemy would be working conversely to try to convince them that you aren't good at what you do, that your words don't matter. And it, those attacks come, uh, uh, even sometimes are used in ways that they're not intended to be, but uh, he's such a master uh, at... Uh, going to warfare with us. So we're going to close the series this, Matthew. I'd just like to say that, you know, 
50 years of Briarwood football, this has been a fascinating process for me to see the early stages and, of course, to be a part of the school during a big part of the growth. But I will say that as you listen to all these podcasts and then watch uh, what's happening, uh, the transition from older coaches to a whole fleet of new young coaches, uh, I'm just uh, really optimistic that uh, in time, uh, this will continue on. Obviously, good seasons, tough seasons, <laughs> joyous wins and agonizing defeats, but somehow God uses it all uh, for his glory and for you. So I really appreciate the work you do as a head coach. It's a joy to watch you work. It's been a joy to watch you grow up through the program and just excited to see uh, what the next episodes look uh, during your career. I appreciate it, Coach. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you for all you do. I mean, it's been um, one of the neat things for me is while there have been <clears throat> new coaches, new faces that have been brought in, there's been uh, a few constants that have been around for as long as they have. And I think um, Coach Ancy for as long as he did, and then you uh, were there for the growth in the beginning of all of it, and you're still here now. Well, this Bye. is Broward Classics Football Podcast. Uh, you can find this entire series on all your favorite podcast providers. And uh, don't know when we'll ever do another one again, maybe 10 years from now. But hopefully these will live in perpetuity and remind us uh, what this whole ministry is all about. Mm -hmm.